In this third week of our series, Waging Peace, we come to this text in John's Gospel where Jesus is found praying for his disciples. We call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus for several reasons. First, because it's at the final moments before his betrayal and his arrest. The Gospels are full of indications that Jesus prayed a lot, both publicly and privately. But here, this prayer happens at the end of his 33 years on earth as a final act of obedience. So it is a high priestly prayer because of the occasion at this, the penultimate moment in his life, in his ministry. It's also a high priestly prayer because he is the high priest, <laughs> the one who stands before the Father, the God of the universe. He represents all humankind as the Son of God, but also as one of us, having taken on our humanity as God incarnate. And he represents us, interceding on our behalf before God. The high priestly prayer. And then there's also the most amazing aspect to me of this high priestly prayer. Notice that that first verse we heard, verse 20, Jesus prays for his disciples. Yes, the 12, the apostles. But then he also says this, not only these, meaning the 12, but also those who will believe in me through their words. Who's he talking about there? Who? Yes, you and me. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer because he prays for all those who will believe, including you and me. Jesus praying for you. Jesus praying for me. It's an awesome thing to have someone pray for you. Especially when you hear your name. Have you noticed that we name names on Sunday mornings when we pray? Have you heard your name on a Sunday morning? To know in that instance that everybody is praying for you. How about this? To know that Jesus prayed for you. And based on what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.34, he is in God's presence right now praying for you and me. As Paul says, at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Even now, Jesus is praying for you and me right now. By name, so, if this prayer that we've read about this morning, if this prayer is such a big deal, 
what is it exactly that Jesus is asking God to do for you and me? What is his prayer request? It's this, that we would be one, just as that sign says. This was on purpose. And by the way, thank you, Rich Synth and um, Jackie, for, for doing this. Yeah. But Jesus' prayer is that we would be one, that we would be one in heart and mind with him, Jesus, and therefore with the Father. All of us, together, one in Christ. Now, he mentions this in the prayer, not once, but four times. If you've hung out with me at all in church, you know when something is repeated, I make a big deal of it. It's like highlighting. And when it's mentioned four times, we should imagine this blinking in neon highlighting in our text. This is super important. And that last time, he says it in verse 23, that we would be completely one. Grammatically, in the original language, um, I'm going to get a little nerdy on you here, but he uses a very strong expression here. It's a perfect passive subjunctive. It's used in what's called by grammarians a paraphrastic construction. Basically, all that aside, basically to indicate a permanent state as the goal and final result. A permanent state of oneness is what Jesus is praying for. All this to say that he was not praying that we would have a feeling of oneness or some kind of fleeting experience of solidarity together or even a close time of fellowship. No, Jesus is praying for us to be permanently joined together as one. Permanent, enduring, unending unity, stuck together with a glue that never lets go. This is what he is praying for his disciples, that they will be one, that will be, they'll be stuck together, that they'll never, nothing will ever be able to separate them or divide them. This is Jesus' prayer. He repeats it four times. Now, I'm going to suggest something this morning that may sound to some of you like heresy. You know what heresy is? Something that's not quite right. <laughs> but here it is. These words from John 17, for me, have risen in importance to the level of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, you know the Great Commission. Some of Jesus' last words for, uh, to his followers, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I uh, to obey everything I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. These words, we call these words the Great Commission, and they have been venerated by evangelical Christians, rightly so. These words will always be our commission, don't get me wrong. But, in 2018 and beyond, I'm seeing this prayer in John 17 at the same level of importance for the church, as a commission for the church of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because we are living in an era and we are not one in Christ. 
We live in a time when those who call themselves disciples of Jesus are deeply divided over political and social issues. It's, tr- it's a troubling situation that has been becoming more and more serious and more and more true since the early 90s. A number of factors have contributed to this, but one of them is that Americans in the early 90s began spending their news-gathering efforts in what Alan Hilton calls the echo chambers of MSNBC and Fox News and other outlets that merely affirm their own narrow points of view on both sides of the spectrum, hear me, It's no secret that our nation is deeply divided right now. You know it. We all know it. And it's scary. There are those who think that we are headed toward an armed civil war in this country. But what is especially troubling to me is that we are seeing this division being played out in the church of Jesus Christ. As a nation, the issues that divide us range from abortion to gun politics to separation of church and state to recreational drug use, homosexuality, immigration, health care, gender issues. That's a lot. (laughs) But something has shifted, especially in the last two years. What has changed, from my point of view, what has changed is that what could have been described as simply a disagreement or a a difference of opinion has gone to another level. That of what, what Alan Hilton, again, calls a whole new level of enmity. Hatred laced with fear and invective that we have not seen before. Our series this fall, Waging Peace, it's about that. We're going to talk more about this image. We chose this image very carefully this fall. But peace, shalom. I will tell you that this passage in John 17 is the one I was most looking forward to sharing with you in this series. Because what I see Jesus praying for here is peaceful unity in his church. And right now, in the North American church, we have anything but peaceful unity. And it's beginning to affect us here at Mountain View. This is no secret. Let's be honest. There are political differences in this congregation, in this room right now. You know that. I know that. It is in some ways a reflection of what's going on in our society. I want to make a few comments about this. Number one, in one sense, I'm grateful. I'm grateful we're seeing this in our congregation. Because it's an indication that we're being true to our tradition as Presbyterians. From its beginnings in the 16th century, which is getting to be a long time ago, (laughs) the church called 
Presbyterian has had a tendency to engage in issues rather than hide from them. Did you know that? Not always, not everywhere, but on the whole, if the world is grappling with an issue, so is the Presbyterian Church. There's something healthy about that. As long as it's done decently and in order. <laughs> Those are the, the kind of the bywords of the Presbyterian Church. They do appear in Scripture, by the way. But if it's done decently and in order, and I would add with love. So in one sense, it's good to engage. We're being true to our, our heritage and our tradition. Second, I'd like us to think about where we are as a nation. I'd like us to look honestly at the issues that separate us and, and think about the future of the church, this congregation, and the wider Christian church in America. What do we want to see five years from now? Where do we want to be ten years from now as a church in America, as Mountain View? The direction things are going right now, I can tell you that churches will become more like silos of specific points of view more than they are now. I see more divisions coming more denominations, as if we needed more denominations. By some estimates, there are already more than 40,000 denominations worldwide. Do we really need more denominations and more division? I don't think so. Where do we want to be five years from now? Where do we want to be as a congregation five or ten years from now? We have some choices. Third observation. I mentioned that we see this division beginning to take place in our own congregation, taking sides over issues. I want you to know that this breaks my heart as your pastor. I see it playing out in one place in particular. I think you know where on social media. Now, don't get me wrong, I am very much in favor of free speech. I am in favor of expressing our views openly. However, what I see happening on social media is not helping the peace and unity of the church. I'm suggesting that we factor this in and that we be wise when we are considering posting something on social media in this church. The Apostle Paul taught the Ephesian church to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To make every effort, every effort, to promote unity and, to, and peace in the body of Christ. And what I see on social media is similar to having a discussion, especially a heated discussion, via any form of writing, whether it's snail mail or email or, or texting or Facebook or Twitter. It's just, folks, it's just a poor substitute for real face-to-face -face communication. 
where, where 90% of what's communicated is, is a result of facial expressions and body language and, and, and just physical presence. Social media conversations are a recipe for miscommunication, misunderstanding, and division. And we don't need this in the church, especially right now. So, what can we do instead? I realize it's not fair to say stop doing something without suggesting something to replace it. We learned this raising kids. You know, you tell your kids to stop doing something, you got to give them another option, something to do. So, here's something. Here's the beginning. We're working on a new kind of experience here at Mountain View to have what we're calling courageous conversations. Not a new term, it's used elsewhere. But basically, this would be a place and a time where we can engage together on issues in an environment of respect, love, trust, and mutual understanding. A planned event where we come together and we talk to each other, with each other, and not at each other. And here's the goal in all this. To be one in Christ. I've watched churches struggle with political divisions becoming deeper and deeper and more feverishly pitched, especially in the last two years. And I keep thinking, there, there's, there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, instead of allowing a church to, to swerve to one a position farther to the left or two, a position farther to the right. Isn't there another option? Why not stay together despite our differences? Now, I know this is a tall order. I know this may take something miraculous. But our God is a, a miracle-working God. And if this were possible, what kind of witness could that be to a world that's used to seeing people of faith hang out always and only along lines of agreement? What if we began to see our differences in this church? What if we began to see our differences as gift or gifts? The same way we honor different spiritual gifts that make the church richer and more varied and beautiful, unable to serve. Why not see our variety of political and theological differences this way? In reality, folks, in reality, we agree on so many more important points than, we, than, than those on which we disagree. The list is small, the things we disagree on, compared to the list of things that we have widespread agreement on. Folks, in 2018, a church that looks like that, I believe, will be exactly what Jesus was praying for in John 17. A church unified, a church loving each other, bringers of shalom, waging peace, I believe this is what Jesus prayed for. And the question is, will we be the answer to that prayer? 
Jesus prayed the world would know us by our love. What better way than to express love in surprising ways across differences? So will this happen here? We have an opportunity before us to, to defy cultural expectations and love each other beyond differences. Will we? If we do, if we do, the world will notice. Mark my words. And we will be known by our love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Well, God, I sense that we stand on a threshold today. And we have a choice as a church. We have a choice to listen to the words of Jesus and to begin to intentionally be answers to this prayer or go the other direction. Lord, we bring our offering to you this morning. We're grateful for all your blessings, including this church. Lord, as we support this church with our tithes and our offerings today, we also pray a prayer of dedication, not only for this offering, Lord, but also a prayer of dedication for our life together. That you, Lord, would make us one. That you would draw us together. For we pray in the name of Jesus who prayed this for us. Amen.